0: Does anybody remember the name Grant Taft? He was a head football coach for Baylor University back a handful of decades ago. He, uh, they were always knocking on the door. I think they got a national championship in there. And uh, this is just a, a story Grant Taft had about commitment. When you're committed to something, we talked about the first night, what does that mean in your behavior? So Grant Taft had had a, I think, like a, an eight and two or a 10 and two season. Uh, they're in the recruiting time. Those guys, those college coaches I mean, they make hundreds of thousands, now millions of dollars, but they're, they're, they're just slaves, man. They just work their tail off all the time. And so Grant Taft had one of his supporters call him up, a big rancher that was out of town away, and said, "You know, coach, he said, "I want you to come up. It's deer season." come up and do a little deer hunting, get a break, you know, kind of enjoy the time when you're up here. Get out and walk around. You know, it's going to it's gonna refresh you for what you're going through right now. And coach was like, ah, oh, man, there's, I just don't see how I can do that. Well, one of his assistants was there listening to this. And after they hung up, the assistant said, Coach, I'm going to be at your house at 5.30 on Saturday morning. No, we can't. i got to make some. No, I'm going to be at your house at 5.30 on Saturday morning. I'm picking you up. We're going to drive up there and go hunting for the day. So Taft kind of gives him a hard time and stuff and finds like, okay. So Saturday morning comes the assistant coach shows up at the coach's house in his station wagon. Some of you don't know what that is, but it's like a long car. (laughs) 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 So he shows up in his station wagon. They get in, they drive through town. You know, they go to a 7-Eleven, get a cup of coffee and they're heading out in the low hills there in Texas. And they're driving around and uh, they get to the dirt road and they turn off. And it's like three or four miles on this dirt road down to this ranch house, this guy's got to spread. So they're drinking their coffee and kind of talking and the sun's you know, not quite up. They're going to go out. And the guy's probably got to stand for him or something. I don't know the hunting details of the story, but they get there and uh they pull up in front of the house and coach gets out and there's a bunch of crowds around there and stuff. And he, he says, let me run in and check in with a guy. You know, he'll tell us where we're heading to. So, Grant Taft goes in and he walks in the house and the guy's wife's in there and, you know, gives, wants him to, offers him coffee again. And the guy says, coach said, you've had such a great season. I said, we are so proud of the school and, you know, good record. You know, I, I wanna help a little more this year on your recruiting, you know, getting some guys here and, you know, putting some more money in that direction and stuff and just goes on and on. And Taft's like, oh my gosh, you know? So he's feeling like, okay, that's enough good stuff about me. And so finally he says, okay, you know, we, you know where he wants to head to, and he tells him where to drive out to a, a big old oak tree or the rock next to it, and turn off and go down. And there's a, a, pile of a, a hill with rocks on. I mean, sit up there, and the deer will walk by underneath you. So Taff walks out, and he heads out to the car. and He walks up to the side of the station wagon, and <clears throat> he just puts his hand on top, puts his head down. The assistant coach goes, "Hey, coach." He goes, "Yeah, just give me a minute." Sister coach steps out of the car and he goes, Coach, what's going on? He goes, Man, he goes, This this was terrible. Sister coach goes, What happened? He goes, I went in there and that guy said we were one of the worst teams he's ever seen this year. He's so embarrassed by the fact that we didn't win our other games. He's just, he doesn't know if he's going to quit supporting us. He, I'm, oh, sorry, I left a part out. God, Grant's taps in the house before he comes back out. And the guy says to him, He says, Hey, coach, he goes, Our family, we've had see that old mule out there. So we've had that mule for 26 years. I grew up with my kids. We got to put him down. Nobody in the family can do it. Can, can you do that for me? And he's like, Oh, no way. He goes, Coach, you'd be doing me a great favor. So then he walks out to the car, acts like he's mad. Sister Coach gets out of the car and he says, What, Coach? He goes, guy goes that guy he was just riding our program in the dirt he goes man he opens up at the back of the car and goes god that guy ticks me off so much so i'm gonna shoot his mule pulls his gun out <laughs> boom and he shoots the mule drops dead right there well tap's laughing to himself he can't turn around right away then all of a sudden he hears boom boom and he goes, the guy his assistant coach goes come on coach let's go i got two of his cattle <laughs> <laughs> That's commitment. Isn't that commitment? He was he was all in on that. So how do you let animals out of a cage? Do you stand in front of the door and open it for the lions and then get ready to run? If you're going to turn this zoo into a, a, a nature preserve where things are working like they're supposed to, God's moving in and out among you. He's, he's walking around. He's, if he sees something that's a problem, we say that the lions and the, the uh, predators, that they, they call out the injured animals. Well, we want God to call injury out of our lives. We want him to call the things out of our lives that we don't want there. But we stick them in a private cage. And we maybe don't visit them very often. But we click on it once in a while. Or we stop by there once in a while. Or we use the card for something once in a while. And so we we, we have that cage. But we just think, well, it's not hurting anybody else. But it's sick. So how do you do something like that? Do you just do you let them all go? Do you? send in your assistant, your assistant coach, and go, hey, go open all those cage doors over there, will you? (laughs) Run like a wild man when you're done. I I, I have a a little experience I had one time that is that feeling because it's a feeling of letting go. It's letting go of yourself. Because if you're going to let God be the keeper of the natural preserve guess what part you play in it? You're just one of the animals. You're not in charge anymore. When I was, uh, like I mentioned, I was in Vietnam. I was in the First Marine Air Wing for four months. <clears throat> when I got there, we were in Da Nang, out kind of by this place called China Beach. There was a movie about it, a TV show about that. Uh, Marble Mountain was up a little ways away from there. And so we were loading our helicopter squadron, 1960, 19- 70 yeah 1970 and so we were packing it up and it was going to ship to irukuni japan so after i was there four months around the last week of august we loaded all the stuff on the uss durham a huge transport ship and uh, it was a naval ship and so there were about 350 of us marines that got on the ship and it was about a four or five day trip going up there and we all got assigned to jobs you know, we, I mean, while we we're there, some guys worked in the mess hall. Some guys worked, you know, swabbing decks. Other guys were sand. I mean, they just put us to work. Well, I got sent down to the commissary. My job was to get the food and put it in the elevators and shoot it up to the cooks. So the guy that worked there asked me what my rank was. And I was what was called a Lance Corporal at that time. I was an E3. And he goes, oh, no, this is, wait, no, I'm sorry. I was a corporal at that time. Yeah, I'd been in about a year not quite a year and a half. I was a corporal, and I was an E-4, and he goes, oh, no, this job's for an E-3. And in the Marine Corps, <laughs> if, if you're an E-9, and someone tells you to do something, you do it. You don't say, well, no, and I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, I'll, I'll do this. The guy goes, no, I can't let you do that. Said, this is a position for an E-3. I go, well, what do I do? And he goes, whatever you want. Hang around, go up on the deck, look around. So I had to go report in every day and go back when it was time was through and and go out. But on the back of this transport thing was this great big helicopter pad. And around the helicopter pad, when the helicopter came in, they had these like eight-foot nets that came up on the side so nothing would blow off like people or luggage or boxes or anything. So these things came up around all three sides of this thing. And then the the whatever, I don't know what you call stuff's on ships, stuff on ships, but the the, the building part of the ship was the other side of it. So this guy told me, you can go out there. And he goes, go out there and just strip down your boxers and lay down on the net out there and just soak up sun. <laughs> I'm like, what? Well, now, I got to remember, this is not just there. There's no women in the, in the Navy, in the Marine Corps. Well, there were some, a few, but not out on ships and stuff. So I, uh, I go out there, and I look at this. And these nets are like, they've got like five-foot arms. And the netting comes in all the way to the side of the boat and it goes out about eight feet and then they they lift up and I'm looking at this thing thinking. So I trip down on my boxers and I climb down and I crawl out on this thing on a thing and I lay down on my back and it's a sunny day and I'm just laying there suntan. And the holes are about this big in it, you know, so I'm not gonna slip through. And so I'm later, so I roll over and I'm getting the suntan. Well, the next day I went out there and I like adrenaline. So I went out there and put my boots and utilities down and stuff. And I walked over and I backed up to the edge of the deck. I put my hands out and I just went and I fell backwards off the, off the ship. And the net was there. <laughs> but that feeling of just letting go. If you just fall back, what's the net we have with our life? Isn't it God. Who never goes, who never gets surprised, who knows every hair on your head, why would you be afraid to fall into those arms? Why would that be something that we would be tentative about doing? Doesn't that seem weird? I mean, that that net was eight feet long. I'm six foot three, so I wasn't worried about going off, but. I could have made a mistake and leaned a little too hard. or kind of jumped a little bit and hit my head and bounced over the side. And (laughs) probably no one would have said man overboard because they probably wouldn't have seen me go off that thing. But it's still the idea. I I remember that feeling clearly because the first time my ears started ringing from the adrenaline and then when I was laying on the net, I started getting that sick feeling, you know, I felt like I was going to throw up or something because adrenaline, you know, when you come down from it, it's terrible, but it's awesome going up on it, you know, and it's just, you're letting go. There's several things that make men not let go. And it's really hard. And it comes down to personal things. And we're really good at carrying personal things in our heart that we don't tell anybody about, aren't we? I can become frustrated with my wife and she'll never know it. I can be upset about something and I can hide it. We're good at keeping those things inside of us. So it makes it hard to do something like letting go because I've got several things I'm holding on to in my cages. And I think one of the things that is the hardest thing for us to do is to deal with forgiveness, forgiving others. Forgiving ourselves, see that's kind of mushy a little bit. That's a little soft. That's a little bit too too close to personal. Forgiving God, that is really hard. My wife was sorry. My wife was one of eight kids when she was six years old. Six years old with. With a younger sister and a younger brother, her mom died. Her dad was the president of uh, Azusa Pacific College. He was in Christian work. They had a great family, great siblings, and her mom died. Went to the hospital, had a surgery, and they contaminated her, with. and they admitted this later and owned up to it with cancer. Went to her head, and she died 30 days later. Think forgiveness would be an issue for you? Think that'd be something that would could easily put a barrier between you and God, you and people? How about you and that doctor? How about you and that hospital? There's an interesting story, and I was going to cover more of it in the Old Testament and Genesis, and I'll try to summarize it a little bit. You, most, all of you know this probably, but it has to do with Joseph. Remember that... <clears throat> His uh, dad had, a, had 12 boys, right? This is the start of the nations of Israel. And Joseph was one of the two favorites. His bro- younger brother, Benjamin, was the other favorite. And so his dad sends the, his brothers out to the field with his sheep to go work, and he stays and hangs around the house. You know, pops Jiffy Pop, you know, watches TV, you know, hangs out, gets the game out, plays for a while. I mean, he's got the life of Riley. So one day, But his dad one day calls him in. His dad loves him more than everybody else, and they all know he does. And so dad gives him what? A multicolored a robe. Dad had this beautiful robe made for him gave it to him. Then his dad, a few days later, sends him out to go find his brothers. They take the sheep somewhere, and they take off. He goes off to find them and says, you know, go see how they're doing. He goes to one place and he says, oh, no, your brother's moved. He goes to find his brothers, and as he's walking up, they see him. Well, his youngest brother, Benjamin, the other favorite's not there. It's just the 10. And they see Joseph's coming, and they start talking to each other. And I mean, they hate him. Their dad has built hate in them. And they go, let's kill him. When he gets here, let's kill him. Let's take that jacket and rip it up and put cheap blood on it, send it back and tell dad, oh, a wild animal got him. I don't know if any of you ever hated a sibling enough to just like plan killing them. I think my siblings planned that on me a few times. (laughs) But, I mean, think of the depravity of that moment. So he comes out, and one of the brothers kind of is going to try to defend him and say, hey, let's don't kill him. as well to be on our hands. Let's throw him in an empty cistern and just leave him in there. You know, then we can leave, him if he dies, he dies. We're not doing it. But his plan was to go back and get his brother out later. But while he's off with his sheep, here comes this caravan coming from Egypt, or excuse me, is heading to Egypt. And as it's coming by, the brothers go, oh, they drag Joseph out, and they sell him to the caravan going to Egypt. How would you feel about your brothers right now? It's like smoking Joe, man. I'm I'm buying something that's a (laughs) semi-automatic. We're going to have a come-to-Jesus moment with him, you know? So he gets taken down to Egypt. and gets sold to the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, and his name is Potiphar and he gets sold to him, and Potiphar finds out this guy's got his act together. He's kind of doing pretty good, and so he <clears throat> makes him the head of everything Joseph does. The animals reproduce, the crops grow huge, so he makes him the head of his home. Anything I have is yours. You know, everything I have is yours, and so Joseph's doing this. Well, Potiphar's off some, somewhere. Was it, was it wasn't Potiphar, was it? Yeah, it was. Thought something else popped my mind. And so Potiphar's wife, who is one of the most beautiful women of all in Egypt, because he has such a high rank, he's not married to somebody that's not the most beautiful. She sees Joseph, and it says in Scripture in Genesis that she lusts after him. She goes up to him and t- starts grabbing him and touching him and saying, come come, sleep with me. Come sleep with me. And he, he leaves. He starts avoiding her, says that this continues He's about 30 years old. He is physically ripped, and he is very smart and handsome. Scripture says he's a handsome young man. So think of being in that situation. And she continues and continues and continues. One day there's no one in the house. She catches him there. She goes in and grabs him and starts pulling on his robe. And he says, no, how can I do this? This would be a sin against your husband and a sin against God. Wait a second. You mean the, the God that you worship that let your brothers sell you into slavery? That God? You still believe in him? The one that brought you to Egypt and your dad thinks you're dead? Is that the God you're talking about that you don't want to do something against him? You, 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 you still think he thinks about you? And so Joseph runs off. The wife pulls his coat off. When people come back, he tells them, look what happened. That Hebrew slave boy came in and wanted, tried to rape me, and I ripped his clothes off, or I held his jacket when he left. And so pretty soon Potiphar comes back, and he walks in, and he's, you know, she tells him, and he throws Joseph in prison. I'm not guilty of anything. My brother sold me into slavery. I am making this guy millions of dollars, and now I'm in jail. He's in jail a while, and pretty soon the the baker and the winemaker for Pharaoh, they both tick him off at dinner one night, and he throws them in the same prison. And after they're in there for a while, they have a dream. And when they have this dream, one of them dreams, the, the wine guy dreams, there's three bundles of what? Three clusters of grapes. And he dreams that he squeezes one of them and catches them in Pharaoh's cup and gives it to Pharaoh. The baker says that there's three baskets of bread and he hasn't bounced on top of his head, but he starts getting frustrated because the birds start eating the bread out of the baskets on top. So they're going, what was this? Well, Joseph says, well, man can interpret dreams, but that's God's job. But I can tell you what God says I mean. He tells the winemaker, in three days, you're going to be taken back into Pharaoh's place. You're going to be his cup servant, slave, and you're going to do great. He's going to love you. So the baker goes, oh, good news. Shoot, I'm going to ask him. What about me? Oh, in three days, you're going to be taken back before Pharaoh. He's going to kill you and stick a shaft up inside you out of your head, and the birds are going to come and pluck your eyes out. Ooh, bad dream. So he tells the wine guy, he goes, hey, if, if you get back with Pharaoh, remember me. Get me out of prison. I haven't done anything. So it's a couple of years later, Joseph's in prison, probably an Egyptian prison. They weren't going to school. They weren't getting their GED. They weren't watching TV. They weren't getting conjugal visits, you know, and all these things weren't happening. And so after two years, Pharaoh has a couple of dreams. And I'm trying to crush this through. And one of them, he said that there's these seven cows come out of the Nile, and they're big, fat, healthy cows. And then right after that, these seven skinny, gnarly little cows come out. And he looks at them, and then the seven skinny, gnarly cows eat the seven big fat cows. And after that, there's this this, this plant of wheat, and there's seven huge heads of wheat on this plant. And then he looks, and there's seven gnarly little kind of dried up, you know, gnarly little things. I mean, they were going through climate change, and they just all this stuff going wrong with them. And those seven little skinny ones ate the big ones. So Pharaoh calls these wise men in, they come in, nobody can figure it out. And all of a sudden, the wine guy, he goes, oh, I was negligent. I didn't do what I should have done. There was a guy in prison. I had a dream. He told me my dream. It was right. He told the baker's dream. It was right. And so Pharaoh calls Joseph in. Joseph comes in, he hears the dreams, and he goes, oh, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be seven years of just plenty. Everything's going to grow great. We're going to have extra surplus of everything. Then there's going to be seven years of famine. And if you're not ready, it's going to, your, your entire country will be destroyed. And Pharaoh's like, well, what do we do? And he says, you know, you get a very wise person for, set, for seven years. You put one fifth of your, your growth every year into storage, and then that'll get you through the next seven years. So Pharaoh asked his counsel, you know, hey, is there someone like this you guys know? Well, they didn't. Pharaoh said, well, you, Joseph, <laughs> you're the one that interpret this. God's with you. It's obvious. You do this. So cutting ahead of this, <clears throat> Joseph's dad and his family run out of food, and his dad sends his brothers to go get grain. So they And Joseph is dressed like Pharaoh. He's wearing his ring. He is the second most powerful Pharaoh since Pharaoh's told him, you, there is no one more powerful than you in Egypt except me. So he got a job promotion. And so his brothers come before him, they bow down. Well, Joseph recognizes his brothers. But they have no clue who he is. Head shaved, hair back here, wearing gold and art—you know all this stuff he has, fine silk and all these things he's got on. They have no clue who he is. They speak Hebrew, so he's speaking to them through a translator. He speaks Hebrew, but he has a translator translating Hebrew for him. He speaks Egyptian. And he talks to them, and they tell him what happened. He says, you guys here, he, and he says, you guys are spies. And they go, no, we're not. He goes, yes, you are, you're spies. No, we're not. He says, well, then one of you go back and tell your father and bring your little brother, and I'm going to keep the other nine here, and if you don't come back, I'll kill them, because I know you're spies. If you come back with your little brother, I'll know, because that was Joseph's little brother, same mother. So <clears throat> then he has three days, he throws him in jail, and then he pulls them back out and says, I'll keep one of you here, and the other nine of you go back and bring that little brother of your old man, your dad. So they go back, they tell their dad, everything's happening. What happens is they don't do anything. They don't come back till they run out of food again. So they left another brother there that they didn't know what was going to happen. So the other brother's still waiting there. And so then he sends them and now they go back and they take the little brother. They take Benjamin. And when they get back in front of Joseph and they're talking to him, he sees them, he recognizes them, he knows who they are. And He says, okay, sell stuff. He goes in and has just, he's emotional about it. And then he tells his slaves, he said, now pack up their bags. And whenever they leave, put all their money back in their bags. And on that younger brother, he says, put my goblet in his bag. And then they leave. And just a short time later, he tells his soldiers, go out and stop those guys and arrest them for stealing from me. So they go out and they catch them, and the brothers are going, we're not spies, we're not cheating, we're not stealing. They go through all this stuff, and they said, search our bags, and if you find it, and somebody take it and kill them, you know? And so they go through from the oldest, get all the way down to Benjamin the youngest, whoop, there's the goblet. So this story is like bizarre. It's convoluted, they take him back, the other brothers all go back and say, kill all of us and let him go home, my dad will die if they don't. if he doesn't see him again. And it comes down to, to me, an amazing thing. Joseph is talking to him. He kicks all of his attendants out of his presence with his brothers. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. Here's the point. And don't be angry with yourselves. For selling me to this place, it was God who sent me here ahead of you. Two sentences later, God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families the next sins. so it was God who sent me here, not you. Forgiveness? W- w- would Joseph been justified to just snuff him out? In our thought process, especially in our masculinity, would he have been justified to just go right there on the spot? Absolutely. And what did he do? You don't even see him processing through forgiveness. Because you know what Joseph knew? God never went. Joseph's in jail. What happened? Joseph's in his cistern. Are you kidding me? That's not the God we're talking about. Let me tell you a story. I have a friend raised spring heifers for dairies. A number of years ago, he uh, sold a, a cow to a guy for $67,000. And don't think that's a lot. I've been to, I went to an auction one time and saw a bull calf sell for $6 million. One freaking little baby cow. That, you know, bull. Yeah. The reason I bought it was because... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> anyway, so my buddy takes this cow. A guy buys it. He takes it over to him, gives it to him, and then he doesn't get paid. And he doesn't get paid. And he's kind of waiting. And then one day he's down. It's been a couple of months, and he's kind of not starting to get ticked off. This guy owes me. That's a fair amount of money. You know, my buddy had a lot more than that, but it was a fair amount of money. And then he's out at Bravo Farms there on 99. He's having lunch one day, and the guy comes driving in in a brand-new truck. So my buddy's been processing this, and he's a Christian. He's been processing this for the last couple of months. And he's sitting there, and the guy comes in and eats, and they talk, and they're sitting, all the buddies sitting around with the dairy farmers. And the guy gets up and leaves. My buddy gets up and walks out to his truck. Walks up to the window. The guy puts the window down. My buddy says, I want to ask you to forgive me for my attitude towards you. What? This guy stole $67,000 from him. And he went up to that window and said, I want to ask you to forgive me for my attitude I've had towards you. Is that out of your wheelhouse a little bit? I had a roommate in college named Bob. I won't say the other guy's name, but I'll tell you Bob's name. Thank God, jerk. (laughs) We were in the jock dorms at Cal Poly together for a while, and then uh, my third year there, we moved out to Morro Bay and rented a house. Well, Bob and I wrestled, so we went into school every day, and then we stayed for practice, and we'd come home. Well, Bob was a consumer. I mean, that guy would eat my food in the refrigerator all the time, and he was my weight class. He could go the weight class up. I weighed about 190 to 195 all the time. He weighed 240 in the offseason, but he wrestled about 191, So he'd lose 40, 45 pounds every season. And so, so that need to say, I mean, he could beat the tar out of me. <laughs> so I didn't have that option he'd wear my clothes, he'd wear my t-shirts. I mean, one time i go in and he had been wearing my boxers. Who wears another man's boxers, you know? Even though they were clean. I had a 1966 El Camino. He drove my El Camino to school. He would take it and not tell me. I'd go out, and I'm like, where's my car? Oh, Bob went, no cell phones. He's in San Luis Obispo. One day, he brought it home and ran out of gas between San Luis and Morro Bay. We're living in Morro Bay. Left my car. He comes home, got a ride. type comes in. And I go, Wait, where's, where's, where's my car? He goes, ran out of gas. And I go, well, get the gas tank. He goes, it's your freaking car. You go get it. <laughs> Wow. Well, one of the other guys in the house, name was John. And John was kind of a spiritual leader for us. I recently had, about six, seven months ago, the privilege of going down to Yucaipa and moving him to Visalia. His wife passed. He's 75 years old, has no kids, only one half brother lives in Florida, no family. So we moved him up here, living by himself, but he comes to all our family things. All my kids call him Uncle John. He's a great guy. So I'm complaining to John. Going man, fires me up. I was a Christian. Bob was, John was. We went to Campus Crusade. So I'm just, I'm, I'm just ripping on this thing. And John's sitting at this picnic table we had in the house, and he's sitting listening to me, and he said, uh, "You know what you need to do." And I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, kill him!" You know, I can, I, I can't beat him, but I can maybe kill him in his sleep. You know, one night I was snoring. Bob hit me so hard with a pillow, he knocked me unconscious. I bounced on the bed, and I don't remember anything for a while, and then I kind of, I mean, this guy was gnarly, dude. He was, like, horrible. And John looks at me and said, you know what? You need to ask him to forgive you for your attitude. I was like, what? (laughs) Well, I I was raging at him. Am I responsible for him or for me? Was I in charge of his behavior or in charge of my behavior? Was Gail responsible for that guy stealing that? Who I said his name? For stealing that cow? Or was he responsible for his attitude towards that guy? So Bob came home. It was against every grain in my body. Walked in the house, and he's, he's a rough, gruff guy. And he came in, and I said, hey, Witt. He goes, yeah, going on his way to get my hamburger. And he says, I go, hey, what, I want you to forgive me for my attitude. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Go goes and gets my hamburger, cooks it up. We could spend the night, you know, that evening. Next day, same thing. I'm just raging. Carville goes, you know what? He goes, you need to ask him to forgive me for your attitude. I did that every day for over two weeks. I would get in a rage. And he would come home, and John would talk to me and pray with me, and then he'd come in the house, and I'd say, hey, Whit, sorry, man. I've had a bad attitude about you again. Yeah, whatever. But after a couple of weeks, the situation began to change. Who do you think was changing? Me. God was working on my heart in that relationship. Bob changed some, maybe. I don't even know if that, because I don't, that never became important. And we're still great friends today. We talk two or three times a week. But who was I responsible for? Who are you responsible for? You've got a little root of bitterness we hear about in Hebrews that's kind of in your heart. You've placed there against a sibling, against a spouse, against a boss. And you kind of can ignore it, but pretty soon it kind of churns and starts to move, and you're totally justified. They're wearing your boxers. They're wearing your T-shirts. They're eating your food. They're driving your car. Everything is justified. What do you need to do? I've I've eaten this crow pie several times with my wife. And I went for 16 years with the roots of bitterness in my heart and It didn't destroy my wife, but it was destroying me. And I had to be the one to ask my wife to forgive me. And it was for my attitude. It didn't have to be behavior. I don't have to act out for that. Because what's more important to us, our spirit, our attitude, or our physical movement? It's our spirit and our attitude. And for us to draw close to God, it's hard when we're growing this little garden of roots of bitterness in us towards people that we have around us. And maybe someone's sitting in this room with you. They did something that really upset you. You go to church together, you maybe had a business deal, something happened. You guys lost money and they didn't cover their share. See, these things, in men... Dude, that's a piece of humble pie to eat. That's really hard. But before sometimes, we can come before God and we can understand what He did. We have to understand what we're doing. And sometimes you won't be able to go deal with those things until you've dealt with your relationship with Jesus. There might be some in here that have never asked God to forgive you for your attitudes towards him. See, we ask God to forgive us for our sins, right? But God, forgive me for my attitude towards you. You killed my mother when I was six years old. My parents divorced when I was five, and I just struggled my whole life with that. And I've been so ticked off at you, God. That's your job. God needs to, you need to ask God to forgive you for your attitude. And the lead-in to that is to ask God to forgive you for your sins. Because if you don't do that, you don't have the relationship that he can help you be forgiven. Because someone can tell you, I forgive you, but it can still be there. I always feel bad for people that lose a child in a murder, you know, in a drunk driving accident, and the court trial goes on for two, three, four weeks, and where are they every day? Sitting in court. I think, oh, I feel worse for them than for the fact they lost a kid, but I feel terrible for what's going on in their life right now. But you read every so often someone whose child, they lose a child, and not too long afterwards in the media, they say, I I forgave this person for what happened. Who do you think is going to win? The person with a forgiving heart. So as we pray, if you're here tonight and you you haven't really asked God to forgive you for your attitude towards Him and ask Him to forgive you for your sins, we start praying, I'm going to give you an opportunity to let me know. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to try to make it something that, you know, because as guys, when we do something like that in our heart, it's something we're not playing games with. it. All the emotions aren't going. There's not a band playing right now. We don't get up and just come do it because of emotions. My dad went to Hume Lake with a police couples conference. He was not a Christian my whole life growing up. And I went to Marine Corps because I did get kicked out of the house and lived in a motel the last three months, two months of high school. And so there were things going on. So I wanted to go where no one told me what to do. But on that weekend, my dad was the only guy that stood up and went forward. I promise you that was serious. That was a real decision. That's the kind of men that are in here. Let's pray. Father God, oh my gosh, you have such a sense of humor. You love us. You know us. God, you have so loved the whole world that you sent your only son for each individual in this room. God, I'm so thankful for those that know you, that those have come to know your name. But Lord, if there's any here tonight that want to have a life, it's a healthy ecosystem. They want to see things work like they should work in life. It doesn't mean a life of ease. It doesn't mean a life of no problems. But it means a life that there's a God of the universe that walks with us during every problem we have. And a God who turns all things together for good to those who know Him and are called by Him. With our heads bowed, if you're here tonight and you haven't made that initial decision, you haven't asked God to forgive you for your sins and to forgive you for your attitude, would you just look up at me? Don't anybody else look around? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Ah, Lord. There's a rock band playing in heaven right now. There are angels just yodeling at the top of their lungs. You are so excited. I don't know how you do it, God, but somehow in this moment, you have written several more names in the book of life. When we fall to the ground and our heart stops, God, we can have no fear. We can be excited, sad for what we're leaving, but so excited for where we're going. Father, thank you that your spirit moves among us. Your spirit is in us. You never leave us. You never forsake us. There's nothing you're going to put in front of us that we can't do with you. Lord, help us get out of the way. Help us open our arms and just lean off the side of the ship and fall into your arms. And Lord, help us keep it simple. For those of us that need to go home, and hey, do some attitude checks. Make things right with our kids or our spouses or our bosses. Lord, help us to not make excuses, but just to own our own stuff. And thank you for the freedom you promise us when we do that. Lord, thank you for joining us and joining each other. Thank you for loving us so much that someday when we're in your presence, we're going to be blown away by how much you've been loving us all this time. In your son's name, amen.